0: So Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. Father, we ask you today that by your spirit you you would have this time. We pray, God, that what is true would penetrate our hearts, convict us where we need to be convicted, comfort us where we need to be comforted. And and what I say that is false, just let it fall to the ground, Father, that you would give us discerning ears, but at the same time, you would give us open, honest, and humble hearts to be changed by you. We pray, God, as we look at this topic, this theme, from our text of money today, that you would help us to, to just lay our defenses down. Rest in the security of the finished work of Christ so that we might boldly take new steps of freedom in our everyday lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I don't know where I get this image from, what movie it is, but growing up, it seemed there was this theme in certain movies of this man being in a desert or this woman being in a desert, and they've been walking for days and they are feeling this sort of extreme exhaustion. This, this nearness of death. And so they begin to see something. And what is it that they see? What is it called? A mirage, right? So this sort of like this epic thing. And like all of a sudden they see this oasis, right? This water. Or they, or they see this beautiful person. Or they see this rescue. And so actually the mirage just leads them closer to death because they expend now all of this energy. They start to, to run They start to dream. They start to gain more optimism. They start to gain more hope, only to have it totally disappointed. Because when they reach the destination, and I'm just imagining, again, I can't remember where it is, as they dive into the water, they just hit the sand. As they grasp for the person, they're grasping for air. And now instead of that mirage leading them to life, it's only led them that more closer to death because they've expended their own natural resources, their lack of water, their lack of energy, their lack of hope on something that ended up being nothing. And this is a lot like how money can function in our world and in our culture. As we look at money and we think, if I just had a little more money, then I would be able to cope with life in this world. If I just had the wealth that other people have, it would provide me with great opportunities. And what we often think as Christians is we think, and I won't be like those greedy people with money. If I had the money, I'd be different. If I had the money, it would give me life. If I had the money... It would maybe buy me a boat and a truck to pull it. But it, I would do more. would do more. But what we have to realize if we don't know it yet and what God's Word wants us to see is that money has a dangerous power attached to it. But also we'll see it also has Great potential. But sometimes in our culture, particularly in our uh, 21st century North American way of life, we can tend to view money as sort of this neutral thing. That is not powerful, and we're blinded by it. And I say this humbly humbly as a person who lives in a fairly nice home, who we have two vehicles. But even in saying those things, we're, we're just blinded by the... The way that we have so much in comparison to the whole world, and yet often most of us are so discontent and think, "If I just had a little more." I remember one time being at a, a conference, Evangelical Theological Society in Atlanta. We were meeting in this grand hotel room. You know, if you've ever been to any of these conferences, you know there's always like all of these big book tables. You know, all of these people walking around. You know, they're their coffee and everything and it was the topic of Jonathan Edwards was brought up and was talking about his owning slaves and how we reconciled that with the fact that we might appreciate some of his theology and it was a very important subject, very important thing to talk about and one, one of the speakers got up and said well this is a great discussion but let's also realize probably a hundred years from now when the center of the church and, and this isn't even true but this is how we think is not North America but it's probably Africa or even the Middle East, they're going to be looking back and saying, can you believe those Christians met in this posh hotel? To have a conference on theology while most of the world is starving and in need? And we're here arguing about other people's blind spots in history, and we just live in this giant blind spot of our wealth and our affluence that we see first has to serve me, and then if there's any leftovers, we'll see about Jesus and others. And I say that with all humility because I, I just know I live in that with that blind spot. And Coelith, the writer here of Ecclesiastes, is is wanting us to see that. This is someone, or from the perspective of someone extremely wealthy, so it's not someone just trying to make themselves feel better. We've seen the great wealth of this author in Ecclesiastes 2 but what we're called to is the same thing Jesus calls us to to seek the kingdom first not second not after we've got ours right? seek the kingdom first and then all these things will be added unto you versus living for the mirage that the love of money offers so why is the lure of money so strong? So we want Think out loud a little bit here together. If you're new, sometimes we do this. Why is the lure of money, let's say the love of money, we'll, we'll clarify that later. Why is the lure of love of money so powerful or such a mirage? Okay, good, Cody. Money, like, let's be real, right? Money gives you power and leverage in this world. Helps you get what you want. Gives you security. Makes you feel like you're in control. What, Jean? You can mask reality with it. Very good. T? Makes you feel independent. You don't feel guilty. Do we see like this is... This is kind of like dynamite we're playing with here, isn't it? Because all of these things that we just said out loud are really... Kind of like anti-Christ statements. <laughs> you know, it's going to give me my security. It's going to help me not to mask reality, right, and numb myself. It's going to give me the power. It's going to give me the independence. It's going to, it's going to give me all of these things. And so we see in their in, in text here today some of these things. In verses 8 and 9, we'll step back there. The first thing we see is that the love of money fuels a selfish society. It fuels corruption and justice at the highest levels of power and in governments. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. So like, well, there's corruption in government. Right? The Bible's just like, okay, y'all shouldn't be shocked. For, now here's why, though. For the high official is watched by a higher one, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So basically what is being described here is this system, this economy, this government with this sort of top-down power system. So what verse 8 is saying is everybody's watching their back by looking above. So I've got to make sure that I please the person over me. Because if I don't please the person over me, then I'm going to just des- get, get it from them. So I once worked at UPS. Great place to work for. In spite of what I'm about to say. Disclaimer. Uh, very, great job delivering packages. So our bosses at times would yell at us. And it uh, could be pretty hard. Right? High-paced environment. Do you know why they did that? and they were really nice people when you're out in everyday life, is because if they don't yell at us, then they're going to get yelled at from somebody above them. If they don't get the numbers that they need to produce, then they know they're going to receive reprimands, sometimes financially (laughs) reprimanded. And so this is what is being said here, is that there's this system to where whoever has the most power, whoever has the most wealth, we all sort of cater to them. The only problem is, in that type of system, in that type of, of society, who gets oppressed and who gets left out? It's whoever's at the bottom. Whoever's at the bottom. And so verse 9 here, which if you, if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see a little note in the bottom like, the meaning of this verse is very uncertain. But one, one attempt by Ian Proven says this for a translation in the end the only gain from hard works in the fields is the monarchy which flourishes in the soul of the workers labor this is why God warned Israel about setting up a king setting up a monarchy they're like eventually that king's going to take your sons and send them off the war eventually that king's going to come and say hey I've got to have a portion of your fields eventually you're going to not be served by a king but you'll serve a king So self-centered financial gain can be at the heart of a selfish society. So we've heard of trickle-down profits. There's also trickle-down oppression that often fuels trickle-up profits. Unless you just want to be in the system, right? So you can rise to the top, but you can only rise to the top if you're willing at times to compromise your soul. This is what Ecclesiastes is showing us, and I dare say there's some great comparisons to life in our world today. Selfishness. I remember, I can't believe, remember if it was after 9-11 or, it some, or if it was the crash of 2008, but one of the airlines had to lay off like a major portion of their people. But what came out of this, and I'm no economic expert, if you need to correct me on this afterwards, I'll receive that humbly is that none of, what was reported is that none of the higher-up officials in the business lost their jobs. None of the higher-up people in the business even really had to take pay cuts. Now, the logical thing in my mind at the time was, couldn't all of the billionaires just say, at least for a season, we're going to just make $100,000 a year? And then, so the people at the bottom could maybe keep their jobs, or at least some of them? That kind of feels like common sense. But that ain't how it goes down in our world. And if you're like, yeah, well, the market would crash if shareholders saw that the leaders of the business were now in this situation, but that really only proves the point that the system is set up as in such a way but if you see in the province the oppression of the poor just realize everybody's looking up. But it's not just out there, it's in us. So we think of when how we give. We give internally to the church or externally just in our mission, externally in our mission. Do you say before I quit doing that, I'm going to quit eating out? Before I quit giving to see the kingdom of God advance, I give up my comforts first. Because when we don't, we're just like the CEO making a billion dollars and saying, I'm not lowering my standard of living for the sake of some other person. We think about our time. Do we say, all right, I've got my time Me time, my needs. If there's leftover, I'll give it. But if there comes a hard time, then me first. See, the love of money not only fuels a selfish society, it fuels a selfish life. Our sensitivity to the issue of money just reveals the idolatry that we have. This might be a good little line for you, whether it comes to money or anything else. Sensitivity often reveals idolatry. What are you the most defensive about? What are you the most sensitive about? What is like, what areas in your life is the fuse really short? Shows that it may have a grip on your heart that is not of the spirit, but more of the self. Where in our lives do we have this sort of top-down view? When Jesus came into the world, as we've already read as a part of our our order today, was Jesus comparing himself by looking up? Was he saying, this is how I'm going to judge how I live my life, by who's over me? Or did he say, by what's beneath me, by who's, so to speak, under me? He sort of looked down, didn't he? I dare, I, I dare say there's probably not many of us in here when we have comparison having in our life, it's comparison going down. It's comparison going up, isn't it? But they have this, but they have this, but they have this, but they have both. But it seems as if the lens of the kingdom is a comparison not going that way, it's a comparison going this way, if we want to use that language. It's that when we look at what we have or we don't have, the view of the kingdom is, but but look at who has less. Less opportunity, less resources, less time, less privilege, less power. It's a game changer. Again, this upward—the the—in some—in some ways, the great hope of our life is what we call upward mobility. We just want a standard of living, the good life for many of us, particularly in our culture. The good life is this, right? Financially, comfort. Resources. But what is the kingdom life? Second Corinthians 8, 7 through 9, we see here that when Jesus looks at us in the poverty of our love of money, praise God, He doesn't look at us and say, they're just never going to get it. Because our love of money... Is really just a revelation of the poverty of our hearts. And yet we read texts like this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What a beautiful statement of the gospel. Jesus did not say, Father, I will go do whatever you want me to do as long as I can retain my comfort, my possessions, and even the access to my power. This is amazing. The grace of God in Jesus Christ and how He loves us. As we look into Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 these sort of guiding chapters for our church and why we planted a church, is what would it look like to actually be a church like we see in the New Testament? Is at the heart of that is this community that says, my resources are your resources. That I will sell what I need to sell to help you before I buy what I want to make me feel better. That's not communism. That's the kingdom of Christ. We've seen beautiful pictures of this in our church so far. Some things that you guys might not know of, and I know that we don't want to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing in a lot of these things, so I'm just going to generally speak of this just to encourage you. Early on in the life of our church, someone reported that they had received a very shocking tax report that instead of getting money back, they now owed this X amount of money. This was early on in in our first days, and our missional community just said, okay, We'll pay half of your taxes. And we all pitched in and covered it. Small group, eight to ten people at the time, over $1,000. I'm not saying that, right, to, to be braggish. I'm just trying to encourage you. Right, This is not just words. We want to lean into this. We've seen people have fines paid for legal issues. We've seen people receive loans, receive gas money when they needed it. Simple things like recently, three mailboxes for the homes in the community of Blythe Oldfield. One thing we do that maybe we don't realize is that we all know it the way that we have a weekly meal together. It costs money, doesn't it? And time. And now, as we move back into the park for a season, is basically we're going to all sacrifice with our finances, with our resources, so that we can invite everyone to the party of the kingdom in Blythold Field. This is exciting. This isn't like, like motivating one another by guilt, shame, or fear. It's like we get to get in on the same way that Jesus has loved us. We don't want to be a church that just spends our money on our maintenance or our own comfort. We certainly don't want to attract people by those things. Because what we so often forget in our church culture is what we win people with is what we win them to. What we win people with is what we keep people with. So we want to win people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because then we can live open-handed lives. We have nothing we can't give up or lose. Because Jesus is enough. But this is hard for us because of what we see in verses 10 through 17. That the love of money fuels greater dissatisfaction. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his tool that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So let's sort of just tie all these things together. The first thing is, there is never enough. I can't remember if it was Carnegie or Rockefeller, one of these early great wealthy men in the history of our country. They said, when will you have enough? Or how much money will it take for you to have enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And it's never enough. Verse 12, also the insatiable lust for money robs us of our sleep. One person determined, called this the indigestion of materialism. I know what this is like. I'm getting older. My wife can tell you. If I don't eat the right foods, then at nighttime, it's hard for me to sleep. Indigestion. I've right, got to prop my head up and find some kind of medicine to help saying there's an indigestion here of materialism that robs you of peace in your life. You thought it was going to give you peace. You thought it was going to give you rest. But that lust keeps you awake. The anxiety of not losing it or gaining more keeps you awake. What looked like was that mirage of your rescue now has become just more shackles on your life. So verses 13 and 14 say that, that riches are hoarded for self-protection, only to a person's own hurt. Right? Riches were kept by their owner to his own hurt. Why? Because they were never really enjoyed. It was like a person who collects baseballs but never throws baseball. Whoa, I'm too anxious. My baseball might get scratched. But also we see here, it's like riches that are never shared create this indigestion of materialism. It's like the collector of a baseball who has a son who wants to play catch. But he never goes and plays catch because he loves the baseball so much. And it's this mirage of security. Someone mentioned that earlier. But looking to money for our security is like trying to earthquake-proof a house that has been built On an active fault line. The security of money, all it is saying is you get what you've built is a prettier sandcastle than the person down the beach. But your beautiful sandcastle will not last the waves of life, sin, and death any better than theirs. It may impress some people, right? oh, wow, they're a great sandcastle builder. But it's not going to stand. Verses 15 and 16, money cannot defeat death. Well, we might think it can, but it can't. Verse 17, the great theologians, the Beatles said, money can't buy you love. It can't buy you love. It can make you miss out on it. This is how Jesus would probably illustrate this. In Luke twelve, thirteen through twenty-one. Jesus has asked a question. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That is, living to want more, living to want, have as much as others have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I know I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns and build larger ones. So that I can store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, your security, right? Soul... You have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. So now, here Ecclesiastes in the background. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The fool says, What will help me to have a life where I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry? It's money. It's money in the bank, it's bigger barns. But God said to him, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared whose will they be so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God the spirit wants us to find ourselves in that parable this is Jesus expositing, teaching the wisdom of the people of God Money will not satisfy. You go into debt for something you think that's going to satisfy you, you're going to be enslaved. You let your dreams become all about you, you're going to be enslaved. And if you think money is going to numb you, Gina pointed out earlier, it's going to take care of the issues of your heart and it's going to ready you. For again, Ecclesiastes, it's all under the shadow of death as it were is going to kind of let you be the exception to that reality you're a slave there is only one who can defeat the emptiness in our souls the despair of the suffering we face the decay of the sin that we live in and the reality of death and that is Jesus that is Jesus The only way you can live a life where you have security so that you can eat, drink, and be merry is when you believe that Jesus is enough. And if Jesus is not enough, no amount of money will be. If Jesus is not enough, no amount of wealth will be. If Jesus is not security enough, no amount of wealth will be security. If Jesus is not enough satisfaction no amount of fill in the blank, but for today's purposes, wealth will be enough. So we've got to learn to tell ourselves, because the baits, the bait is enticing. We can't take the bait. We have to tell ourselves this won't last. This won't be enough. But Jesus is. And so the final thing for us to contemplate here at the end of chapter five. And into chapter six, is that The love of money may fuel a selfish society. The love of money may fuel greater dissatisfaction in our lives. But the love of God can actually help us enjoy wealth and use it for great purposes. So 1 Timothy 5.10 says this. I want you to see me reading it here so you know I'm not making up stuff. Tear my Bible page. I'll do that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we know what everybody likes to say. It's not money's wrong, it's the love of money. And that's true. But we have to feel that that is a tightrope that's hard to work, walk in this present evil age. And I would say particularly as 21st century Americans. But verse 18 shows us that God actually wants us to enjoy life. Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting? is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for for this is his lot. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So we, we've, we've got to be careful, right, that we don't swing the pendulum out of the kingdom, right? We're all walk, here's, here's life, right, and there's ditches on both sides. And all of us have our preferred ditch that we step in, right? The ditch of, I want a lot of money. And then some of us in here might be thinking right now, I'm just going to go home and set my house on fire and live, and live in a tree, right? And not worry about it, right? So another ditch, right? It's okay. We're, we can handle that, right? We can be in a community where we both know we're being pulled. And if we, if we actually can love one another enough to hang in on this journey together... Maybe what God's doing in both our hearts can, can keep us right here. We're not really wanting to be balanced. That's the word. I don't even know what that means. We want to follow Jesus, right? We just want to follow Jesus. And I think the, the, the word this morning is calling us to see that we need to feel the dangerous power and pull of wealth and money. But there is such a thing as a life where we have possessions and things that we enjoy, and we use them for the betterment of the kingdom, the betterment of the world. God wants us to do that. God does not want you to just be miserable. God just wants to rescue you from the misery that loving money is going to bring you. What he's saying here, there is a joy that can be had in your possessions if that joy is submitted to Christ. If you seek first the kingdom. We think of these wildfires that will take off in California, right? And just all of a sudden, just decimating. Great swaths of land and even these subdivisions just like consumed. That fire is very, very deadly. But we also know that fire is used to give us warmth. And this same substance, this same whatever fire is called scientifically, it's not a chemical fire, right? (laughs) This fire, this resource that can destroy. Southern California is the same fire that can be used for you to have a bonfire in your backyard with someone who needs to see and hear the good news of Jesus. It's both fire, it's just fire put in its place. This is how we need to view our resources. If you are really good at making money, you know what I think you need to do? You need to make a lot of money. Knock yourself out. Some people just can't help it. That's not me. Not my problem. (laughs) But I don't want to heap any guilt on somebody that can do that. God has gifted you with that ability. Go for it. Now, though, realize this is going to be really hard. And I'm going to have to humble myself. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples look at him and say, well, who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. You see, the same Jesus that died on the cross for our love of money is the same Jesus who has risen from the dead and who has given us the Spirit now to do the things that in our flesh are impossible. But we can't do them alone. We've got to be able to talk about money. My dad told me, son, we don't talk about money. And I know what he meant, and now another ditch you can go in, right, if you just start walking around with your bank account on your key ring or something. But as a community of believers, we need to be, if we can't talk about money, we're not talking about most of our life. Let's just be honest. we got to learn to talk about it. And that will demand a gospel explanation in the world. People don't have a category for that, especially in the church. We need to realize that the love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. We need to realize Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. forever. So for people who think, I can do both, Jesus said you can't. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. So what might this look like? A content heart. So if you want to enjoy your wealth, enjoy your money, in ways that actually glorify God and love others, then you've got to learn to try to cultivate a content heart so that you can hold it with an open hand. The way you can see that, that, that you're loving your money is when that grip's tight. Paul said, I know how to, to be content in all seasons, whether much or little, right? So we cultivate a content heart, an open grip that doesn't say, you know what? I've got to at least have my, the same standard of living my parents had. I mean, that's just a non negotiable. I was told I have to have it better than them. Right? No. Nope. (laughs) That's not the the kingdom story. Right? Open hands. What do I need? I'm going to pray about it with my spouse, with my roommates, with my community. What do I need? We have a kingdom hope. That means we ask ourselves when we spend our money, when we make financial decisions. How does does this fit into seeking the kingdom first and trusting God will add all these things unto me? Not just in the big purchases. I'm not getting legalistic here. Let the Spirit lead you. Do I stop at the convenience store every day and buy the $2 Powerade? Or do I go to Walmart earlier in the week and buy the whole pack? Right? If we're going to follow Jesus in the stuff everyday life, right? Just think about little things like that. Well, wow, I just saved $10 that I could maybe invest somewhere in God's kingdom work in this world. Baby steps. What about Bob? You know that move, but anyway. I don't know why I said that. The, so a content heart, a kingdom hope, and community humility. So I've said this already, but we've got to talk about it. We've also got to recognize that we're wanting to be an attractive community of believers. So as we pull up in the tough, overlooked areas of our city, right? And again, no judgment, fear, or shame. I feel like I've got more blind spots than you guys. But, you know, if I come pulling up there in a decked-out Hummer, and then I step out and say, I just want to tell all you people Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. We just gotta start to, to be honest about these things. And we've got to talk to one another. Nobody wants to, I don't want to tell you what I'm thinking about doing my money. You know why? You might tell me that I might should think of something else. I don't want you raining on my parade. This all boils down the sacrificial trust. So we mentioned it earlier. I heard it out here in Cleveland yesterday. Classic song. Sorry to torture you guys, right? Money won't buy me everything, right? But it'll buy me a boat, buy me a truck to pull it, buy me a ice down, a Yeti with something silver bullet. Anyway, Yeti full of beer. So, right, it's just sort of this thing like, yeah, I know money won't buy me everything, but it's going to give me the good life. That's just a lie, first off. It might give you a good Saturday, It ain't going to help you go to sleep that night. And you know what? It could buy a bunch of other stuff, too. It could buy some families food that don't have it. And if you you think, well, I want to help people, not hurt them by just giving stuff, it could buy, it could support programs that help to develop people and grow them. You see, we must submit our money to the kingdom of Christ. This is good news for us and for everyone around.